at this point in my life, I take a lot of comfort in how long it takes to get good at what we do. Like I think both of us are in just areas of the arts where you can't fake it. You can't just, it's not, you know, it's great to have a great singing voice, but we're doing like opera where you right. have to learn how to do the thing. You can't fake it when people are asking you what the shot list is for the day. Right. Um, right. You have to learn how to do that. And there's so many aspects to it. And it takes years and years and years. That gives me comfort at this point mm-hmm. in my life that like, I don't want to feel like I'm as good as I'm ever going to be. Like I was born this kind of writer. And then now I'm just writing it out. That's not a good feeling. I'd rather feel like working hard does something. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about The Director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right, what's up, people? This is... Episode 36 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, and I am your host, the aforementioned Pete Chapman, and I am excited to welcome y'all to a very, very fun, uh, informative, and compelling conversation with the creator and showrunner of Netflix's hit series, You, Sarah Gamble. Um, We've got that interview coming up. I am going to give you the quick rundown. If you're watching this on video, I'm rocking my uh, Saint sweatshirt from the Wake Me When I'm Free Tupac exhibit down uh, here in Atlanta, here in Atlanta, here in LA, in downtown LA. Um, I don't know what kind of Freudian slip that was, Um, but uh, awesome exhibit. If you are able to check it out, check it out. so many uh, cool, just I'll call them artifacts of, of Tupac's life, uh, notebooks with ideas and screenplays and, and, and uh, album song track orders and pretty much everything that he worked on in, you know, before his meteoric rise over what's really only a five to six year period uh, between like worldwide stardom and, and his murder. Um, and then things in his life as he came to become the man that he was. Uh, so really, really great. Uh, Wake Me When I'm Free, downtown LA. Check it out if you can. Um, I, I highly recommend it. In other news, uh, I am now in the midst of finishing my director's cut of episode 102 for Reasonable Doubt. And uh, it's going well. I'm entering day four four of four. Um, You know, the first three days, I like to work chronologically. Uh, Some folks, some directors argue to attack the big scenes, but uh, I try to work quickly, swiftly, and chronologically um, so I can go through it, feel the rhythms of of the show as it goes scene to scene, and um, get a sense of how it all flows together. Because I feel like a lot of decisions are affected by how 
a prior scene flows um, and I don't like to just work in a in a vacuum like that um, but it's coming together great really happy with the episode um, happy with the show and uh, that's that folks um, now as for our guest today Sarah Gamble uh, I had the pleasure of working with her on you uh, season three I directed episode 307 and 308 um, and uh, I think she affectionately refers to 308 as the crazy one and if you've seen the show you'll know why so I suggest you check it out if you have not um, but she's got a really great career I I think that she is uh, a bit of a kindred spirit in a sense of um, she's a by any means necessary creator um, from actor to writer, poetry to screenplays to teleplays. Uh, if you look at the career, the course of her career, she was trying to get it going in any way possible. Uh, and, and she did it because she sounded and she was committed. And we talk about that in depth and at length in this conversation. Um, so I hope you enjoy this conversation. Let's hop to Episode 36 with Sarah Gamble. Let's go. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. Action. Tell me about Cincinnati. That's where I spent my childhood. Um, it's a nice place when you're a kid and you're just walking around the neighborhood. And I don't know that I would want to. I think it was good that I moved to the coasts when I got a little okay. bit older. But it was a perfectly lovely place when I was like nine. Really good ice cream. Really, and, and chili, apparently, right? Everyone always says that, but I feel like we never went there. It might have been too weird for my immigrant parents to be like, mm -hmm. why is there chili on spaghetti? That might have been what drew the line, because I don't think I ever had it. it. It is a wild picture. I looked it up, and I saw exactly what you're talking about, like chili with cheese on top on a bed mm -hmm. of you know, Capellini. <laughs> I mean, usually when a place has a food like that, that looks weird to us on the outside, it's usually very delicious. So I'm not dissing it at all. I just don't have experience with it. Right. So you didn't, you didn't, uh, where were you born? I was born in New York. I was born in the Bronx. Um, and we moved around a little bit when I was a little kid. My dad got a job in Cincinnati. Um, and then we moved again. He got a job at a, he was a, professor and a doctor and got a job at Loma Linda University. So we moved to California for high school and I just stayed here from there. Did you say Loma Linda? Mm -hmm. All right. Is that have, does that have any kind of uh, creative genesis for Madre Linda in, in you? Yeah, I mean, probably like tangentially it does in that I've lived in, now I've lived in California for most of my life. And I feel like there are so many little town names that are just Spanish words like that. So. Right. And some are some, the pronunciation is honored and in others it is butchered. Right. There is no agreed upon pronunciation for Los Feliz, Los Feliz. That's an example of one. Zero, zero, yeah. zero. It's like in New York, it's Houston. We've all agreed that it's Houston street, but in California, you don't know what you're going to get. No. So what was your first uh, kind of, if you remember, whether it was like a, a story like uh, around a campfire or a family legend or a book that kind of impacted you and, and made you aware of what a story could do? Um, 
I love this question. I hope I have a good answer to this question. I will say my first memory of my life is of sitting in my dad's lap watching TV and there was a guy with like slightly green skin and pointy ears. So I was kind of doomed to be a genre writer. My dad was a huge Trekkie and into Battlestar Galactica, the original, the OG one. Um, And so I would always watch that stuff in like Kung Fu and he just was a big consumer of like all the fun stuff. So that went in before I even had language. Hmm. And um, I had a couple of books of fairy tales that I just remember reading over and over and over again. You know, the, there was the Grimm's fairy tales, then there was the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales. Right. And then you get like a little older and it's the Greek myths. So I think I always just, were you like this? I just always was reaching for that kind of archetypal storytelling. Yeah, it, it's funny. And and correct me if I'm wrong on this. Aesop, mm-hmm. Aesop, what, what, what is that person's name? Um, if that it's one of those. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm reading that to our daughter. Like that's my go-to uh, like thing at night. And I'm like, man, I remember like memorizing these damn things, you know, and like and taking the lesson from them and figuring like well, I'll I'll be ready for life, you know, like when it comes. And then cut to 30 years later, I remember reading um, the 48 Laws of Power which I was like, this is kind of just a, an adult Machiavellian version of Aesop's fables. So they, they, they resonate and help you kind of make sense of the world. Yeah, I think so. That kind of um, uh, like shared unconscious, like the archetype, all the stuff that Jung got into, I really believe in that. There's something so, I feel like there's something about certain symbols that are really in our DNA because they're all right. over the world, you know, all of these cultures that never talk to each other have the same symbols. So right. I just think that's part of being a person. So this is, and I'm kind of hopping around because this is making sure. me want to ask a question. Um, I, so my first real job out of college, ironically, I sat by the water cooler. And so I had the classic opportunity to, to watch people like tell stories and I'd be like, man, that you are, you've lost all attention, you know, and it, and it, and it would be like, something very dramatic and, and a big milestone and people are like I'm trying to get to the microwave and then someone <laughs> else could tell a mundane story and have you hanging on a thread um what is the difference for you god I went you know I saw so many auditions this morning hmm. and all auditions as you know are on zoom and so tragically all the producers are texting their opinion while this mm-hmm. poor act and it's like why are some people riveting why are I, I don't know um I feel like knowing why you're telling the story is mm-hmm. helpful and difficult and some people have this wonderful instinct for it where they're like they start you off but you get the sense they know where they're going they're holding some good shit back that they're going to get to in a minute they have you hooked because you need to know more I mean that's basically all of the stuff that we make is right uh all fancy versions of just I want to see the next thing I want to see the next thing I want to see the next thing so maybe it's the people at the water cooler need to know what their point is and, and be leading you towards it are you the type of writer that has to know where it's going to end before you can begin? Um, 
No, but I'm also not sitting down and typing a script on day one. I'm doing right. so much of that work so I can figure out where it needs to end. Like, um, right. I, I, my setup when I'm talking to people on Zoom, it's like I'm on the opposite side of my desk right now because that's a corkboard full of spoilers. Uh, but, but most of my work as a writer happens before I ever type a single line of dialogue. It's entirely about like working my way to these points, making sure that the ending still makes sense. It's by the way, it's a lot easier if you know the ending when you sit down to start. Like those are gifts from God. If you if you have a story and you know the ending, you should definitely write that one. Right. But the rest of the time you got to figure it out. Right. Yeah, it's like I don't I used to and and I I will I don't fancy myself a writer like you because I do things one at a time. You know, like I I could never like write multiple things at one time. I guess that to me is the distinction between like writer and writer, you know? Um, but I used to not write unless I knew the ending. Okay. And now I've found that having done so much storytelling behind the camera, I welcome the challenge of writing myself into a corner and spending days or weeks trying to figure it out. Because if you figure it out, that shit's liable to be pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, if we always know what we're going to write next, it's because we're in a lane we've seen before. The mm. audience knows too, like they have seen just as much TV as we have seen. They've right. seen that episode. So stumping yourself is kind of crucial. It just feels awful. And honestly, when I first started writing professionally, when I was in a writer's room, like I was very shocked by mm. that environment because we would be staring at a board I'd be responsible for the episode and I'd be so stuck. And I was like, I just suck at this job. They're going to fire me. Perhaps I should quit, quit while I can. I, I remember go, I had a writing partner at the time. I remember going home to our like shitty rental in Van Nuys and just crying. Like, I don't think I can be a TV writer because I am so stuck. And like cut to all these years later, I am still stuck all the time. I'm just really used to that feeling. It also, by the way, it never feels great. It still feels awful when it happens. It's just so much a part of it that I, you know, it's like, you have to eat, you have to take your vitamins, you have to get stuck. Right, right. So, all right, so let, let's rewind a little bit. So how did you go from, uh, you know, absorbing and, and digesting Star Trek and, you know, uh, all these different shows and transitioning into, I'm going to pursue it as a, as a, at least educationally or as a career? Like how did, how did that kind of happen for you? Yeah, I, I, I was one of those kids who knew she was an artist very young. Like, mm -hmm. um, and I knew I was a writer really young. There was something about language that felt squishy and good. And I would sit in these classes like in grade school and they would offer a creative writing prompt. And, you know, the vibe is oh, how many sentences do we have to write? Do we have right. to write five sentences? So I'd like be like, okay, I'll write five sentences. And it would be so hard for me not to write 25, <laughs> you right. know, it's at the age of seven. So that was kind of always there. And as I grew up, it moved into different areas. I mean, I was studying music. I was studying dance. I went to college to be an actor. Um, I mean, I went to like a four-year college, but my major was in theater. Um, okay. And I... <laughs> I had all these roommates who were writers and creative writing majors and they just fucking hated me. Cause I'd be like, writing is just for me. Maybe it's kind of a fallback. And there they are like, do just what we want to do. Like, don't call it a fallback. That's right. so rude. 
but I, I was like a poet. I was very precious about it. Like I won't sully it with commerce. And then I became an adult and I needed health insurance and a place to live and rent to pay them. And, uh, I suddenly was like, maybe this is the path that, you know, maybe buckle down, maybe don't be so precious. Um, so that, I don't know, that's that part of the story is not super romantic, but just being honest. Well, it's the, but, but so was there a moment or was there a pivot from like acting to writing or did it just kind of happen? Well, I think, you know, if you talk to a lot of, um, I mean, first of all, a lot of writers are also actors. I mean, I think everything, like the lines are slightly fake between the things that we do. Um, But a lot of us just weren't seeing roles that we were right for. And I wasn't quite right for the roles I was going out for. And the stuff I wanted to do wasn't being written for me. It was being written for 35-year-old men. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started writing stuff to perform. I did a play with a bunch of performers who were also writers. And that led to me meeting someone who wanted to write more. That's how Ryle Tucker, who's also a successful showrunner. And um, we just were like, let's write a screenplay. And then let's write another screenplay. And a moment did come. I mean, it was in my very early 20s when this was happening. There was a moment where I realized I had to just commit that um, sitting kind of in between these two things where I kind of was putting my focus on auditioning. And I kind of, it's like at that moment, I had to pick a lane because there's so much work and hustle that goes into breaking in. Right. At that point, I was like, okay, I'm going to put all of my energy and time and get up at the same time every morning and just write every day. And then figure out how to do the, like, figure out how to, like, how do you get from that to an agent? I had no idea, right. <laughs> you know, but I would figure it out. But, then, and that was mid twenties, huh? Yeah. That, that's a, that's a very astute decision, you know, to make <laughs> at that point, because a lot of times, I mean, uh, mo- well, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm waffling on what I was about to say, because I guess most people who end up where you end up are wired like that right? Like, I don't think you fall into um, success, you kind of have the levers, and you just are waiting to find where you want to turn the knobs, you know, to them. Um, So that's interesting that you knew, like, I there's a there's a there's a rhythm and there's a process to it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just gonna wake up and and get better with my 10,000 hours, you know, I think the 10,000 hours thing is completely real. I think I didn't know what it was at the time, but I, um, I mean, I had been working since before it was legal for me to work. You you know, I had always had a job. My, my parents were um, pretty old school immigrants, political refugees, really big on like education, but Mm -hmm. also you can't really shake the trauma of what if it doesn't, you know, the world's not safe for us. And so they certainly weren't going to pay for everything. If I wanted to study acting, they were like, you know, my dad was very clear. He's like, first of all, don't call yourself an artist until you have really figured out how to do it. Like you don't just get to call yourself an art. I mean, I don't know if I actually agree with him, but that's what he told me. Like people call themselves artists who have studied it and mastered it. And also if you want a hard life for yourself, then you can have it, but you have to start now, like if you want to go to, like, we're not paying for everything. Um, so I was, you know, I was already in that mindset. I had been flipping burgers since the day I turned 16. 
Um, and so, you know, by the time I was 22, I didn't feel young. I felt like I'd better hurry up, you know? Right. right. I love it. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's a true thing. I mean, that's an interesting, uh, point of view too. Like you're not an artist until you do it. Cause mm-hmm. some might argue you have to claim it to get there. Right. Um, but it's kind of like whatever drives the, whatever, you know, puts gas in the engine. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think I would be that harsh if somebody were talking about it with me, mm-hmm. but I also have a life. I take a lot of comfort in how long it takes to get good at what we do. Like I think both of us are in just areas of the arts where you can't fake it. You can't just, it's not, you know, it's great to have a great singing voice, but we're doing like opera where you right. have to learn how to do the thing. You can't fake it when people are asking you what the shot list is for the day. Right. Um, right. You have to learn how to do that. And there's so many aspects to it. And it takes years and years and years. That gives me comfort at this point mm-hmm. in my life that like, I don't want to feel like I'm as good as I'm ever going to be. Like I was born this kind of writer. And then now I'm just writing it out. That's not a good right. feeling. I'd rather feel like working hard does something. It does, it does everything. And then as you get, as you gain more life experience, right, you kind of, you get the, cause I always say like, you could have the best shot list in the world, but if you can't like gauge the people in the room or recognize like um, you have to have a different method or tactic or style with, you know, like you could talk to one actor and then literally turn 44 degrees and have to be a different person. And both of those are you, but they're definitely both going to be required to get the scene that you wrote for me to direct, you know? And yeah. the older you get, the more you recognize that it's kind of talent is a, is a, but a portion of it, you know? It sort of just opens the door a crack, but Mm-hmm. But I think it's so great that it all layer, you know, and now you're, you're um, a producing director right now, right? So you're yeah. on a show full time. It's like, we might not always like the producing side. I don't always love how much of my day is spent, like chipping away at a board mm-hmm. of strips, but I was never the same writer again. Once I learned that part of it and, you know, going to post is really time consuming. And sometimes it's so frustrating. I'm like, I want to, I'm like burying my head in the pillows of the couch, right. but I never wrote a scene again the same way after I saw what I had to do to it in post. Right. So there's, it's like all of it adds, you know, you, there's so many aspects, so many layers to what makes you good over time. Spot on. Yep. Um, so 2003 project green light. Yep. <laughs> and so, um, so you, you've made the decision to focus on writing starting every day at 4 a.m., and no, uh, <laughs> and um, then you're moving uh, toward that. How did you, what made you decide to, to uh, pursue that? And how would you like, how do you look back on that experience? Um, 2003 sounds like so long ago now. Okay, so like we started our date around 10 and sometimes I hadn't slept the night before. I'm not saying my shit was together. It really wasn't. <laughs> it really wasn't. I just, it was like, it doesn't matter if you slept or not. Like you can fuck up the rest of your life, but you do have to do this thing, you know? Um, We, uh, so Rael and I were just like chipping away in the living room of this house and we had written, you know, three or four features. Um, I didn't really know much about TV writing. I didn't know it was something to aim for. I didn't Mm -hmm. understand that side of the business at all, but I did know features and I had grown up like loving nineties indie movies 
and wanted to write those, like wanted to be Charlie Kaufman, basically. Um, And uh, what happened was one day I was just out in the world and ran into this very nice guy named Marshall Todd, who at that time had recently written Barbershop. And he was like, I'm a writer. I wrote Barbershop. And I was like, can I pick your brain? Which is the thing that you know now, like we all get that so much, but he was so kind. And he gave me just some advice, some books to read. I was like, I never went to school for this. What am I missing? He's like, he wrote down the books to read. He suggested. um, What books were they? I'm curious. It's the classic Sid Field, of course. Mm -hmm. I don't think he suggested Robert McKee. And I don't think it's that helpful when you're first learning to write a screenplay, to be honest. I mean, it's a great book story Mm -hmm. by Robert McKee, but I don't, I wouldn't recommend it at first. Um, Maybe like Save the Cat. Just the mm-hmm. real classics. He was like, if you read read Sid Field, um, I think it's just called screenplay. Screen or um, screen or screenwriting, right? Yeah, something like that. It's like it just tells you what has to happen on every page. Yeah. And then and like I read it, and then we just would tape paper together and make like a line and divide it up and be like, here's each page, and here's where the climax of this, and here's the turn, and here's the beginning of act two. And we would just plot on the timeline when each plot point had to happen. And that's how we, we you know, moved into being able to break screenplays properly. It was really from just reading that book. Right, um, right. Yeah, so uh, we were like, what are some competitions we can enter? And Project Greenlight had had a season. It was this HBO show where Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were like gonna find the next indie filmmaker. And um, we just entered, it was an online peer reviewed competition you we we got the thing in top 250 and then top 50 make a bio right Right. Um, and as soon as we hit top 50 I just started cold calling agents because you know what um Marshall had said to me was it isn't about winning the competition it's about giving people an excuse to crack open your screenplay like it has that little seal of approval if it made the finals or something and it's just enough that an agent's assistant might read page one Right. So that's really what project we came in the top four. We were on TV for like three minutes, we lost, <laughs> which is better. I think losing reality TV is better. And right. then, um, and then a bunch of people did want to meet us because they had seen us on TV for like four minutes. And so did you kind of step out into the, the world, so to speak, as a writing team? Yeah. Okay. And focused on features. We were, um, just for like a second, um, the agent that ended it. So, uh, you know, what, what ended up happening was this agent was like, I mean, I'll read it for them. Sure. And then like, take them to coffee and give them advice. It's this very non-committal thing, but, um, her name was Sue Nagel. She's not an agent anymore. She like ran HBO. Now she's a producer. Um, and she liked the script so much that she called us and she's like, actually, I want to represent you. And, um, that was like, I still get like a little bubbly thrill when I think about that day because it was so life-changing. Right. Um, she is, she was at that time a TV agent, like a really great TV agent. And she said, if you want to see your stuff get made like this year, if you want to like actually experience production and have a steady job with income that you can count on, you need to be on the TV side. So here's what you do. You write all of these specs of different right. clients. And then there will be a staffing season because way back in 2004, that's what it was. Um, <laughs> and then when she said, when the stars align, then you'll get on a staff. So that's how that happened. 
And so that led to your first job, which was on Eyes on ABC. Yeah. yeah. And so what was that experience like in terms of, okay, you've you've written with Rael, you've you've plotted mm-hmm. things out, you've got feature screenplays. Um, now you're in the trenches on uh, episodic writing um, for which you wrote two episodes, I think. So what was what was the biggest kind of learning curve for you in stepping into that? It was so like a vertical learning curve. Um, the night before our first day of work, I called Sue and I was like, so what exactly happens in a writer's room? Because <laughs> I didn't actually know. I We had taken all these meetings and we'd like talked about the scripts and I assumed we would write. I didn't know. I had no idea. It was like a black box. I had never right. been an assistant. Um, and she, I remember she didn't even know how to answer the question. It was so shockingly naive to her. So right. she, I, so we're there on the first day and there's all these writers who know the etiquette, who understand the business, who have talked in this way before. And my first day was like by hour two, I really had to pee and no one else was leaving the room. And I was afraid that I couldn't get up to pee because nobody else was getting up to pee. So I just, all I remember is needing to pee. Something, something about they had professional bladders. They, everything was different, you know. And I was like, I don't know. Are they going to get mad if I like get up and leave? Everyone keeps talking, and um, so everything was new. Like how to pitch, how to listen, how to tackle a problem, how to get along with your coworker. And there's, you know, not to mention there is a hierarchy in television oh writing. Yes. And I gotta say there was a lot of luck involved in like, I'm working for John McNamara who've gone on to write with a lot. He's a dear friend now, but he was very egalitarian truly in the room. And I think he also kind of enjoyed people um, trying to swing above their weight, you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so some of it was, I think naively, Rael and I were talking more than any staff writers anybody had ever seen in a writer's room. Because we were just looking at the people who were pitching and we were doing what they did, but they were like right. co-EPs. Right. Um, so we talked as much, you know, I remember at one point, one of the guys on the staff was like, I've never seen a staff writer act like you. And probably like, as with so many times in my life, he was saying, you should keep it down. <laughs> right. Right. But I was like, I don't know, I, I, like it felt so high stakes. I wanted to be like perfect and do an amazing job every day. And so I aired on the side of, really, really pushing, I think. I often marvel at the, the fact that like, like I laugh with what you're saying, because like, I remember my first concept meeting, I was like, oh, should I not be saying shit? (laughs) Cause I had a question, I had an answer for everything. And I'm like, uh, never mind. Okay. Uh No, no one tells you like what it's going to be like, or like, when you like start booking all these meetings and you're having generals, no one like gives you like a, a general like sense of like how that 30 to 45 minutes may run. You're just in there. And I think, I think that's the, I think that's the book, you know, like yeah. to know, to know what you're walking into there would be, might keep some people in the industry. I mean, it is a really varsity situation to try to guess. Um, which is like why it's great that you do this podcast and you wrote your book. And it's why I do Q and A's and things on social media as well. Ask me anything. A little bit. Cause like the people I'm rooting for the most know the least. They're Mm -hmm. like, I mean, which is, you know, I see myself in them probably. There's probably some narcissism to it, but like, 
I didn't know, like, and it could have gone a very different way. Like I was not always in a room where um, the hierarchy was so malleable. Like I was in a much more structured traditional room just after that, where I couldn't get a word in edgewise. And if I had started there, I don't even know if I would still be in the business, you know? So would that be supernatural? Yeah. And so, so, and we're we're talking about the hierarchy a lot. Like, can you outline what that looks like? Because on that show, you went from story editor to executive story editor to writer. Well, obviously you're writing all those supervising producer to EP. Like, like how does that, what, what is the trajectory and what is different for you as a writer along the way? So there are, um, there are like titles that you get that are just bumps, steps that you get for each year that you're on a show. They're standardized and they're like, the lower levels are staff writer is the lowest and then story editor and executive story editor. They they mean you're getting paid scale, among other things. Um, and then all of the titles above that have producer in the title. And ostensibly, that means you're taking on more and more production responsibility, but it is entirely variable, as you know, from show to show. There are shows where writers do zero, and there are shows where less and less, but there are shows where writers carry their episode all the way through to post. So that goes like co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co-EP, EP. And not everybody does all of them. If you are renegotiating your contract, you can maybe skip a step or two, which is what I did. Um, And then the person who oversees everything is the showrunner. Their their title is executive producer, but showrunner is kind of a separate title that just means running the show. Right. So it's not like a. it never appears in a credit, but it's the understanding amongst all the parties that are making the show that this is the showrunner. Yeah, it, it weirdly doesn't ever show up. There's like, you know, with a show like you, we have 10 yeah. executive producers and it doesn't say who the showrunner mm-hmm. is, but that, that'll show up in your, like your little bio when you're on a panel or something. Do you think it should? Um, I mean, functionally, I don't really care. <laughs> you know, I just want right. to do my job, but um, it is a very specific job and it mm-hmm. is it is different than just being an executive producer, which isn't a just, you know, it's a big deal to be an executive producer. Um, right. But being a showrunner is really unlike any other job in television. Um, honestly, I think kind of the closest is being a producing director who is taking on a lot of that boots on the ground within production. Um, right. But the showrunner is really the person who straddles everything. Right. Um, so I don't know. Those who need to know do know though. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the <laughs> folks who are who are looking to find their next showrunner know exactly who the yeah, showrunner show. is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I will pit stop here and just say how, uh, and I think I told you this in when I requested the book, the book, the book blurb. Um, mm-hmm. You were one of the best showrunners that I've worked with. I, I appreciated um, how specific and how clear things were, while also it seemed like you had confidence in the people you were hiring, and allowing room to interpret yeah um so you know how'd you learn that lesson how'd you how do you come to how'd you end up in that uh with that kind of uh approach um first of all thank you because that's really the goal is to really tell you what you need to know and then really let you do your job um I mean I feel like in some ways I'm still learning it but Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I've watched 
I'm, some of it is that I just, I climbed through the ranks. I've been in the business for a while. I've seen stuff I don't want to do. I've seen stuff I do want to do. So I sort of picked a little from each, you know, um, yeah. but uh, it's, you know, when you're, when you're running a show, especially when you created it, it's like your baby and your name is on it and you've been working on it for years and you like, okay, so me, I'll just talk for myself, but like, right. I just wanted to like be good and make you feel the way I want you to feel when you watch it. And also like, I'm, I'm out on a limb with this idea and it could be really cheesy <laughs> or, you know, like fear of being cheesy is what right. keeps me up at night a lot. Um, and I just cannot possibly be everywhere at the same time. Um, I can't be in the room and rewriting scripts and in post and on set. And the only way to not end up in an insane asylum is to empower people to do what they're best at. I'm not perfect at it every day. If I weren't a bit of a control freak, I probably wouldn't have this job, but um, but like you got the job on you specifically to direct a block of two episodes because we had seen your work and Silver Tree, our producing director had met with you and was so impressed with you. And it's like, well, you know more about that than I ever will. <laughs> like, I don't, you know, like, I'm not here to pick your lenses. I'm not here to pick your shots. I'm not here to talk to the actors for you either. Um, so let me arm you with as much of what you need to know as possible, just so you can hit the target, which is right you know, it's like a, an ineffable thing we're all trying to find together. It's a, it's it, what's great about it though. Um, praise continues is that it, it, when you, when you know, you don't really have the room to interpret, I'll, I'm just going to be honest and maybe I shouldn't yeah. part of my brain turns off mm-hmm. because, because I know that it's not, I'm less involved in the solution, right? Like when you know, like, you're going to like, start going in a, in a, going down a road and someone's going to say, Oh, well just do this or just do that. Or we don't want that. Or we don't want this. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, let me like, maybe if I give you a couple of the moments in a take, you might see it. You just kind of know like, okay, there's a, there's a bailout backstop here that is probably going to overrule, um, my, my best, Mm -hmm. uh, instincts. And so you, what's the point? I mean, it's interesting when you say that though, because I am always trying to find that balance when I'm talking to directors, because um, like, I'll give you an example. Like we had, so Harry Jurgen directed this episode of you that has a big acid trip in the middle of it. He did such a beautiful job, but like what directors always do is be like, here's the coolest toy. Here's how we can do it in camera. And um, here's how we can do it in camera are terrifying words for a showrunner. We want to have control over it in post so we can like up uh, or, you know, like turn the dial in the wavy gravy. Maybe we don't need it. So it is this thing of like, that might be the best idea anyone has ever had, but also I want some control over it in post. And it is, it is like, I mean, also being more honest than I should. So much of it for me comes down to like, yeah, let's test it. Like let's, let's just try it before the day. And then we'll all look at it together and discuss what we're going to do, you know? Right. But it's like, we're not doing giant, we're not doing $15 million an episode television where you can fuck up and go back and do it again. Like we're a moving train. We're only moving forward. We won't be able to go back and fix it if it in some way, you know? So um, it's a tight, so I guess now I'm just telling you like, it's sometimes a leap of faith, but you have to, you know? Yeah, I mean, and I guess it's, yeah, I guess it's a shared spirit of everyone leaping together. 
Mm -hmm. um, and knowing that like the words are the most important thing and what's the best tool to get there. Um, Cause then the actors are going to have their, their instincts and their points of view. And um, that's, uh, that's the collaboration of it. If, if not, we would be painters, right? I, yeah, probably. You know, I mean, I love that you just said that the words are the most important thing. Thank you. I feel like everyone should say that, but my favorite thing that happens in post is when I watch a scene and I'm like, oh, we could cut the line now because mm. it's so beautifully acted. It's so beautifully captured. You said so much with the shot. Oh, we don't need that line. Right. Um, sometimes it takes being really respectful of the script, which is trying to tell you like, what the beat is about, but then you get it and you get the emotion and then we can just like let go of all the blah, 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 you know? So, right. yeah. This is Keith Powell. I'm a writer, director, and actor. And you're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is Pete Chapman's book from Michael Weezy Productions. What started in 1993 has been a marathon of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book is for any person targeting a successful career in the creative arts. Transitions a director's journey and motivational handbook from Michael Weezy Productions. So <laughs> let's talk about supporting characters um, okay. and how, what your, what your philosophy is on the supporting character, um, how you enrich them with real lives, how they, how can they help you in your larger, you know, story and themes? Like, however you want to respond to that. I think on a technical level, it's always good when you're writing a script to just do a pass. I do lots of individual passes through a script when I'm doing different drafts. I'll do like a dedicated read through it just for one thing. And mm -hmm. I'll do that for each character so that I can see if their arc is clean and also are they a real character or are they just there to like laugh at their best friend's jokes? So I sort of try to take a pass through and treat each of them as the star of their own movie. Hmm. But I mean, to be honest with you, I think um, like frequently the wrong person is the lead. <laughs> um, and almost every, you know, because like we live in set, like we're like the business is trying to do better, but like there was nobody, there's nobody who looked like me um, on the screen, really, when I was growing up, there right. was, there weren't very many people that looked like you either. And right. like, um, I like entirely came of age in an era where the black person was always the best friend, like mm. never, ever the person that all the big stuff was happening to and that they were making the big stuff happen. Right. So, um, like my real goal is to completely flip it. And, um, you know, you is, my chance to burn that guy to the ground who's always the star of every right. story to say right. like let's look at the dark side of this dude who's the romantic hero in like 99% of everything right and then what i hope that affords me is the opportunity to keep having a career without having like a cis hat white man in the lead 
in maybe anything I ever make again. I don't know. Um, I mean, if it was the right thing, sure. But like, I've turned down a lot of them. And I have said yes to some stuff that didn't have, like that guy who solves every prop, like, I'm just, I'm, I think it's boring now. I think we know better. And so this isn't exactly the question you asked, but it is my soapbox. (laughs) No, no, (laughs) I I love this answer. Yeah. I mean, when we, when I was writing The Magicians, which is a show that went on for five seasons and the ensemble became more and more and more central, that also was a show where like that guy, basically depressed American Harry Potter in graduate school, was the number one on the call sheet, but he was surrounded by this very inclusive group of characters. And as time went on, not only did we you know, um, get to tell really deep stories with each of them, but we started to get very meta with it. There are episodes that are kind of about the idea of a sidekick mm-hmm. character and right. episodes that follow those characters and tell their stories instead so that right. you can see what the story was really about. It's interesting. Maybe you'll humor me on this, but sure. it, I, it reminds me when I think of, cause I've done a bunch of always sunny episodes and I wonder if a portion of the audience that enjoys the show recognizes what the show is doing. Hmm. You, you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and, and I wonder with you on the kind of other genre side, if there is a similar thing happening. You mean that people get why we're telling Joe Goldberg's story on you? Or they don't, right. They don't see like, for instance, one of the things that I like, that was really, um, uh enlightening for me was when i don't know if you told me or if silver told me but it was like as like we will never objectify the the female body in in this show unless it's from the perspective of joe and so and and objectify can be a a lingering tilt you you know what i mean Or, or something to that effect and so like that little that one little statement ricochets yeah, you know, throughout the entire season as you move through the plot. And so when you're taking down the Joe Goldbergs of the world, you know, there's a whole faction of people who love this guy, you uh-huh. know what I mean? And, 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 and subscribe to everything while overlooking the stalking and the murder because they're so entrenched and, and thirsty for that archetype that you're trying to detonate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people are very in on it when they're watching, um, really get it. Like there's a lot of, and then I, I even think that sometimes when people are on social media going like, kidnap me, Joe, stalk me, Joe, they're being cheeky. They know, but part of the reason, well, I'm also one of those people. Like when I watch the romantic comedy, and the guy is just violating the shit out of her privacy. He's crossing mm. all these lines. It's not good. He's lying. I have the same reaction as anybody else. Like I am rooting for the couple. I was, it's, I don't know, really ingrained in my psyche too. And it's an interesting experiment to make this show and watch how he'll do something horrible. And then he'll be like a really sweet guy in the next scene. And I'll be like, right. oh, he wants like I, it'll happen to me too. I've been making the show for like four seasons. He still gets me. So right. I'm not, right. I like, I don't know if I would ever actually want to make a show from a place of being like, I know this and I'm going to tell it to you. Do you know what right. I mean? Like right. I'm doing it. Cause I don't know, like I'm exploring it at the same time as the audience. Like I don't have a good answer for why 
I'm attracted to problematic things and why I like bodice ripper novels and why I love Jane Austen. And um, I just, I do, I, but I do recognize that it's like a bit problematic, like that there's a dark side to that. So I'm like, let's all hold hands and figure it out. Well, you know, we're, we're complicated people and, you know, (laughs) and, and I mean, and that's a, that's a thing, like even in, in, in hip hop, you know, like there's things that I love that I grew up on that I listened to and I'm like, that's a a lyric, you know, (laughs) I'm like, no, that, that's, that's a good song though. So, (laughs) you know, we, we, we've got work to do. Um, I mean, if you're going to tell the truth, it's not always going to be cute also, you know? So yeah, that would also be boring if we, I mean, it's kind of the same thing. Like, I don't really want to do the perfect version of to that end. Do you feel with like, um, I hate these generic terms, um, but I'll use it with, (laughs) I I hate them even about to say it because I'm going to say it, but I don't believe in it as it's worded, but this idea of cancel culture and basically like, you know, all the various hives that exist, you know, for from Beyonce to, you know, whoever, does that affect, does any of that affect how you approach, um, you know, a season or a storyline? Um, I just looked over because my dog is making noise on the couch. Can you hear him? Do you hear him like biting the couch? I, hey, I hear a little bit. Yeah. Chill it out. We're talking. Okay. That's, that's a, um, that, the dog's got to live too. Yeah. Um, okay. So the question was, wait, ask me the question one more time. So do you, do you feel um, some sense of, re, I don't even know if responsibility or fear, or do you consider the various um, hive voices that exist when you are plotting out, um, you know, the stories you want to tell? Um, it is. It's just some, it's a part of the job in television. I learned this kind of as I went, I was working on this show, Supernatural. It has a very avid fandom um, that was becoming really excited about the show as social media was maturing into what it is today, where you get a lot of very direct feedback immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, So it kind of is what it is. I mean, it's part of TV and you have to figure out how much you're going to let in. Like as time has gone on, I've tried to just put limits around what I even consume because you can't really push it out of your head once it's in your head. Um, And like, I've definitely produced episodes, written things that not everybody has loved and they have let me know sometimes not in the most polite way. Uh Um, So I've certainly experienced that kind of blowback and um, have had now I'm talking to you and it's, I've, I've gone through it a few times over years. And so I've really sat with how, what, you know, like that I'm, that do have stuff to learn that I, part of mm. my job is like, I'm taking risks with the storytelling. I'm saying things. And then sometimes I'm wrong and I learn and I write it a different way next time, you know, right. so it's not to shut it out. Like, don't ever take criticism. Like, no, but, um, I think it can be debilitating if you worry that people won't like it when you're making it. And that is not new. That's not about Twitter. That was happening to whoever we were back in the Renaissance. Right. It was like, oh God, the cool kids won't dig it. Right. And like, if, as soon as that's what you're doing, um, you risk 
kind of your tether breaking between you and why you want to say this to begin with. So at this point, now that all of the stuff we're talking about, these are pretty mature, like fully grown phenomena and they can be really in your face. They can be kind of scary actually. And they can end your career if they are um, aimed just right. So I've, I've had to be like, you know what? I know why I'm a writer. I know why I want to write television. I know I want to tell this kind of story. And I accept that I can't control the rest of this. It actually makes me want to double down on like my purpose as a writer, which is to dig. I'm going to tell you what it is. Then you're going to be like, you're right. That is a little dangerous, right? (laughs) My thing is just, I'm going to dig into messy human truth. Right. And um, I'm going to do that using a serial killer or a monster or none of the above, right? But um, humans are not just one thing. There's nobody that's going to check every box perfectly. And um, a lot of what we do is contradictory and paradoxical and problematic and scary and strange. And I want to dig into all of it. So I know I'm not going to tell stories that are necessarily going to get me brownie points and cookies and, you know, but I'm like, but it's not about doing that or not doing that. It's about truth. It's about digging into the story until I get to something that feels really, really honest. Um, So that's my, that's just my North Star. I love it. I love it. Um, So we're turning the corner to the end here. Okay. Um, I want to ask if you could, and you could maybe pick two or three, what has been your, I guess, favorite scene that you've written or episode, if it's, if it's a larger, you know, uh, a larger thing than just a, a scene, you know? Um, I know this is a terrible answer. I don't really have one. There have been many feelings of like real accomplishment mm-hmm. and many feelings of like, I'd love a do over. And, right. um, there every now and again, um, you know, cause I think I probably made it pretty clear. I'm not trying to ever climb on a soapbox. Um, but every now and again, like something I really, really believe like that has really helped me in my life. I've managed to just like slip it into a character's mouth. And right. then when people hear it and respond to it and like, get it, the, the, you know, I'm so I'll give you like two little examples, right? There's a scene in um, season one of the magicians where Julia, who's a witch, who's trying to make it on her own and has no schooling. And it's just kind of on the street, this older, wiser magician says to her that like, you know, smart girls scare the shit out of the world. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're not helping you. Like if they try to destroy you, take it as a compliment. And like, remembering that helped me when I was allowed (laughs) girl trying to break in there was a moment like that um this season in you where Marianne is talking to love and telling her like you know you're your real partner it's hilarious to me that like these crazy characters who are literally murdering people every now and then we slow that show down as you know and somebody says something true and, um, and, and people are at home like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's your real partner. That's who you should be listening to. Um, so that was a moment like that. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm a fan of your, uh, well, I don't know if it's titled Ask Me Anything, but when you do mm-hmm. those series of Q&As on your Instagram uh, feed, which 
all folks, whether you like writing or not, I think it it speaks to um, just surviving this crazy industry of being a creative person. Um, what would you say has been your best tidbit of advice from that series? And I know these are like, come on, like whittle it down to one, but it, it, if there is something that kind of uh, best represents what you think is a, is a, is a North star for someone following in your footsteps. Right. Um, thanks for plugging it. Cause it means a lot to me for people to be able to just like ask basic questions, you know, oh, yeah. as you know, um, I have no idea what has made an impact, if anything, but like the thing that I tell other people and every time I say it, I'm like, oh, I need to remember that is that um, like the business is just one part of it. And it's not even like a particularly big part when you think about the lifetime of an artist and what we want to do that we probably wanted to do more or less since we were born, maybe before yeah. that like. You know, like we can't even really imagine what we'll be able to do as artists when we're 70, if we keep doing this all the time. So I like to remind people that the business is a thing. There are rewards and fun things about it and lots of money if you can get in there, but there's a lot about it that's not in your control. And when people say, I'm worried it's not fair, it's not fucking fair. It's totally not fair. It's like really like any competitive lucrative field it is like uh, just a Milo gatekeeper, <laughs> you know, right. um, that doesn't mean you can't do it. And, you know, we're trying to help, right? right. But, um, but you know what, like, that has no bearing on whether you're an artist. Right. I guess we've gotten to how I feel about it, which is, if you're an artist, you're an artist, you're an artist, if you sit down and you do your art, and right. don't let the yeses and nos of people who have whatever motive that may or may not have anything to do with you interfere with your self-concept as somebody who's on this planet, among other reasons, to make your art. Right. That's and that's so true. And I, and the idea of like, you know, if I if I take the assist, I I, I remember looking at, you know, my meeting tour before I got a job, I probably had 250 meetings. Like literally, I kept a spreadsheet. And, wow. you know, meetings that I thought went well, didn't, you know, amount to the immediate um, job, because I, I won't say that they didn't pan out because things have a long timeline. And then sometimes when the meetings were very awkward, I got the job. And <laughs> I was like, okay, I need to stop having a value system that I'm applying to almost everything that happens, because I don't know what I mean, the other person could be socially awkward. They could have had a bad day. They, you know, the yeah. actor could not get the job because uh, you're perfect, but you don't look like the already casted person's brother. And that would be a stretch, you know, and just remember, like, it's, you just do the work and you do it for you. You try and get better and you try and execute on your best work and then rinse, repeat. And it might rinse, repeat for 10 years. It might be 20 or you know, you might be a overnight success for real, for real. But um, my final question, and I really want to hear what you have to say on this is, um, so when you think of your personal journey, and if someone were to tell your story, it's a multi-part question, what medium would it be? Could be film, web series, TV show, whatever. Uh, what genre? Who is starring as Sarah? And <laughs> who is directing it? Oh my God, I love this question so much. 
Um, I feel like maybe at the risk of it being a little pretentious, we want like an immersive theater experience, like sleep no more. Cause part of the deal, anybody who hasn't seen it, you should look it up. I, I, I went, I went to that in New York. I know that. Yeah, I went a couple times, surprising no one. Um, the thing about that, right, is they drop you into this warehouse that has like five floors and a, over a hundred art directed rooms. And then a, a troupe of actors are doing like a very interpreted version of Macbeth in, and and to tell, you know, you can, they run by and you can choose to run with them and be there when they stop and do a scene or you can poke around or you can wander till you walk into a scene. Um, I like it because, there's no way to tell the story with every single part from beginning to end. You get what you get when you're in right. that experience. And, um, you know, I think we love telling stories because we get to impose the structure on life, which doesn't really work that way. Usually it's a bunch of stuff. So if I was going to like, try and drop you into my life, I'd do that and be like, well, you're just going to have to accept. You're only going to get part of it. Um, the rest of your question, who would direct it? I mean, I would only be so fortunate as to have you direct it. I don't know if you've had any theater directing on your resume, but. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. You know, so, I will say I, I was, I, my wife has done a bunch of theater and I was amazed at how like after it was locked in for rehearsal, it mm -hmm. was like director didn't exist anymore. And that was such an education to me. I was like, so and night after night, it's like, yeah, see what happens. Yeah. They're also, they're like, don't change a word. They're right. not like, this isn't funny. Rewrite it. They're like, ooh, right. the playwright. Um, yeah. yeah. But for the time of the workshop, we'd be having a good time. Then you can just go off and do something else while it runs forever. Exactly. Residuals. Yeah. Not mad at that. Um, well, awesome. Uh, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for joining. I know you're in the, uh, on the other side of your desk is the season four that everyone's awaiting. Um, won't ask you for any uh, sneak tips or anything like that. Um, but honestly, uh, such a pleasure. Thank you for joining. Um, and on the next Ask Me Anything, I'm going to fire away some questions and hope that I get a reply. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was really right. nice to talk to you and see you again. You too. You too. Thank you. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right, folks, that was our conversation with Sarah Gamble, the showrunner on Netflix's You. I hope you will tune in for episode 37. I think that is going to be a craft episode from yours truly talking about blocking for television in seven points. So stay tuned for that. And as always, stay safe, spread love and keep creating.